Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. I am very pleased to introduce to you a candidate for U.S. Senate in California, John Ellist, who is a CEO, uh, has a great family story talking about liberty and freedom, uh, and one that actually uh, impacts current policy as well. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of other things. But John, first off, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Captain Ed. Thank you. Yeah. Yay. You know, I, I love the throwback there. So yeah, that's great. Um, and, and John, John's a John's a captain's quarters reader. I just found that out. That's great. <laughs> now, I've been a big fan for a while. I think, you know, it's very refreshing to to hear your perspective on all sorts of issues. So thank you for all you do. Well, thank you for, uh, for being here and for, uh, you know, taking it on the chin, running in California of all places. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a California, I'm a California native. Uh, I escaped during the Gray Davis uh, uh, administration in a balloon. I'm kidding around, of course, obviously. (laughs) I moved out. Um, And it's still a family there. So I'm always very interested in California politics. What made you decide to run for the Senate there? So I'm sure for a lot of the reasons that you decided to leave the state. I mean, I grew up, I was born and raised in California. And the California of today looks nothing like the California that I grew up in. Um, my parents immigrated to the country and the United States was always seen as the land of opportunity, but California in particular was seen as this golden land of the great place to raise a family, to build a business. Um, and it's just gotten more and more difficult to do any of that between the crime and the inflation and the homelessness and the terrible education. Um, we've been pouring resources at these issues and haven't been seeing much in terms of changes. So that's why I decided to step up, um, there are so many parents, business owners, taxpayers who are just upset and angry and would like to see someone who's not a career politician, uh, who has relevant experience coming in and, and making some really positive changes. Right. And John, I mean, let's get to how you came to grow up in California. Your family actually fled Iran after the Islamic Revolution. Tell us a little bit about that experience and what it, sa- what it says about the current status uh, of this administration and trying to reach a deal with the people that your parents fled. Yeah, I mean, if anyone is against this regime that has taken over Iran, uh, it's definitely my family and the immigrant community uh, that's here. Uh, my parents fled the country. My father came in 76. He did his residency in the U.S., uh, only to find out that he was never going to be able to go back to his home country and made a home in the United States. My mother uh, escaped after the revolution. Uh, her family decided to stick it out and see if uh, things would change. Ultimately, they never did. They only got worse over there. And so they escaped into Pakistan overnight and eventually made their way uh, to the U.S. And that was uh, an amazing blessing for them in their lives to be able to be in the United States, to raise a family here. Um, but escaping that regime, you know, it's a pretty traumatic experience. And you realize how quickly a government can turn. Uh, they essentially went from you know, uh, the, the Shah's regime to a completely tyrannical theocracy uh, almost overnight. And that one party rule that took over that country has essentially held that country hostage uh, ever since. Um, and unfortunately, we're seeing some of those echoes now um, in, in parts of even our country, unfortunately. Um, but with the Iran nuclear deal, I mean, the idea of doing any sort of negotiation with an illegitimate regime in Iran, to me, is is insane. Uh, they don't stick by anything that they say. Um, their number one objective is to destroy America, destroy Israel. I mean, they've said this repeatedly. Uh, and so this doesn't seem like a regime that we can get any sort of negotiations with, get to any sort of deal and they won't even negotiate with us directly, with the United States. We've had to go through Russian intermediaries. The, the whole thing is just nonsense. Well, I mean, I, you sum it up very succinctly. Those are my thoughts as well. And uh, I, I think that it's it's a it's an attempt to enter a deal that was bad in the first place. I mean, the first time around in 2015, it was bad enough. I mean, they got all the benefits up front. And, and I think it was designed that way to try to discourage whatever follow-on administration came after them uh, from pulling back out of it. And because essentially we'd paid, we'd paid for it already, but uh, the Trump administration did back out because Iran refused to negotiate on, you know, missile programs and refused to uh, 
re- refused to, uh, you know, cooperate with the with their own with the terms of the deal itself. They weren't allowing inspectors into certain uh, areas. Parchin being one of them. We found out today that there was an uh, an accident in Parchin again, second time in two years. Um, those are. I mean, those conditions really should warn people about the nature of the regime, even if we didn't already know it from uh, the way that they took over and the 444 days that they held diplomatic personnel hostage there. That's exactly right. And we all remember that episode of the pellets of cash being shipped in under the Obama administration uh, in the thick of night into Iran. And the administration at the time, the Obama administration justified it by saying, well, we didn't have a choice. We uh, we had to do it that way because they're not part of the banking system. And, you know, we're all thinking to ourselves, well, of course, they're not part of the banking system because they're the number one state, state sponsor of terrorism. Um, and now here we are giving them cash uh, that, you know, we'll never be able to recoup. So th- the whole process has been insane. They were hell bent on getting some kind of deal regardless of the outcome. Uh, and it just worked out terribly for our country. Yeah, and they're equally hell-bent this time around, although it looks like it might be running aground. Uh, again, as we're speaking today, and this is this will probably um, go up a little bit later on, but as we're speaking today, Robert Malley testified before Congress yesterday uh, that uh, he doesn't think that the odds are good that they're going to reach a deal because of the—he didn't say it explicitly, but it's clearly because uh, the Biden administration won't remove the IRGC from the list of terrorist organizations, State Department list of terrorist organizations— uh, without some serious concessions from Iran, which they're not going to get. I'm crossing my fingers that because Robert Malley is saying it was one of the biggest backers of the first JCPOA, what was involved in that one as well, that maybe it's true and we're not going to do a stupid thing twice in a row. But I, I'm still pessimistic about uh, this administration because they are really so desperate for any kind of win at this point that I think that a bad deal to them is going to look uh, better than no deal at all. No, that that that's right, um, and and it's really unfortunate. It it speaks to a whole series of foreign policy blunders. I mean, as if the Afghanistan withdrawal wasn't bad enough, um, as if our standing on the world stage isn't bad enough, um, as if the way that China is now treating us isn't bad enough. Um, all of these different foreign foreign policy blunders are part of an overall theme um, where it, it's just been really an unfortunate series of of, uh, of events. Well, indeed. And uh, I mean, this is certainly going to be one of the big issues. If you win your election, uh, you win the primary, then you win the election, you'll be in the Senate, you'll be dealing with this issue. But there's lots more to talk about, too. I mean, we should talk about the direction of the country, especially the economic direction, I think, which is the primary issue on voters' minds. And I know you're running in California, so you're going to be dealing with some California issues. But as as a U.S. senator, you're really going to be focused on uh, your work will be focused on national issues, and so you have to kind of uh, you have to kind of work in both spheres here. Uh, talk. Let's talk a little bit about the direction of this country economically and the direction of California economically. So my number one focus in this campaign is inflation and the cost of living because it's just gotten completely out of control. Uh, we've gotten to levels that we haven't seen since the late seventies, early eighties. We're in a really bad place, and people are now starting to talk about things like stagflation again, um, which we thought we'd never have to deal with again in our country. Um, and there is a direct line between the eight and a half percent inflation that we're dealing with now and the one point nine trillion dollar economic stimulus package that the Biden administration passed in early 2021. That was a completely unnecessary fiscal stimulus in an economy that was starting to pick up again. And now we're all paying this silent tax of inflation as a result. And what's even more insane is that the Democrats are now talking about further stimulus because they're seeing that we're going into recession territory. Things are starting to get worse in terms of the economic output. And so their solution is, well, let's print more money. Let's have more economic stimulus, which we all know logically will lead to even more inflation. Uh, And so I think what we need is a change of direction in the U.S. Senate so that we can stop these sorts of ridiculous spending packages that don't make any sense. Uh, And that's one of our main main priorities from a fiscal perspective, how we can start to control inflation. Yeah, I'd love to see the Senate act as a break on um, wild spending plans. Unfortunately, both parties seem to have fallen in love with them over the last, you know, 20 years or so, particularly, I think, Republicans over the last 
five or six years have really taken their eyes off the ball when it comes to deficit reduction, when it comes to uh, debt service, when and especially when it comes to restructuring our unfunded mandates, which run into the hundreds of billions or hundreds of trillions of dollars, excuse me, um, on on current projections. Obviously, we're not we're not spending that money yet, but the, the commitments that we have are out there. That's a tricky. I mean, that's a tricky uh, set of obstacles to navigate for for any politician. It might be even trickier in California because of the um, because of just the politics of the state. No, you're right, and and you're absolutely right that both parties are to blame for the fiscal situation that we have, the astronomical deficits, the trillions and trillions of dollars of debt that just keep rising every single year. Um, both parties are absolutely to blame, and. You know, the 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 issue becomes you know, why have people not been stepping up to say enough is enough? And I think the problem has been that the disproportionate number of representatives, both in the Senate and the House, come from legal backgrounds or come from uh, po- political backgrounds where they've been career politicians all their, all their lives. They're signing the back of a check throughout the entire time of their career. They've never signed the front of a check. Um, and so this is the the part where having a business background comes into play. Right. I, I don't have that luxury when I'm running a business to just print money out of the sky. Uh, you have to make sure that you're living within your means and that you're doing things right. But, you know, the other main story is that adding more resources to a lot of these problems actually doesn't even solve them. It only makes them worse. Right. And we've seen that in California. I mean, how many billions of dollars have we spent federal, state, county, city on the homelessness issue here? And it's still only getting worse. Same with crime, same with education. We pour all these resources, we don't get to the right policy solutions. Um, And so that's part of my rationale for running is that I've worked in government agencies before where we got to better outcomes without increasing the resources at all. And that's that's critical. We've got to get back into that mindset of saying, we've got this pool of money, got to live within our means. How do we get better outcomes? And there are tons of ways to cut all sorts of waste and inefficiency. So, John, I mean, I, I think you raise a number of great points in there. First off, I think you have to stick with that with that line. That is a great line. So that all they do is sign the back of the checks and they've never had to sign the front of a check before. I mean, I think that that's a, that's that's a fantastic line. Tell us a little bit about your CEO background. Actually, we should t- we should learn a little bit about your um, about your background in business. Yeah. So I worked in consulting for five years. Um, a lot of my colleagues were working on the corporate side. I did some corporate work, but most of my work was actually working with uh, public sector agencies, working with international, federal, state, local. Uh, and a lot of our objective was to take the existing resources and get better outcomes. So a lot of my career was spent on that. Um, in addition to working directly in government, I worked for the Small Business Administration. I worked for the Department of Commerce under uh, President Bush. Um, but in addition to that, I've been running a medical device company for the past six years. And that kind of gives me a unique experience of not only running a small, medium-sized business, uh, but also when you're in a heavily regulated industry like medical devices, you get a lot of exposure to government regulation, to government uh, bureaucracy, to government agencies, um, and understanding where some of these rules have unintended consequences. Uh, The biggest sort of takeaway that I've had is that this plethora of rules that are established Yes, we absolutely need to have safety, right? That's first and foremost. But the unbelievable uh, labyrinth of rules that are there only serve the largest corporations because those are the guys who can afford to have an army of compliance people and legal teams. But at the end of the day, it's the small, medium-sized businesses that ultimately suffer the most. And they can't bring new innovative solutions. They can't bring competition to the marketplace um, because the cards are stacked up against them. And we saw that in full relief with the baby formula crisis, right? Oh, yes. Four companies control 90% of the supply. And you're wondering to yourself, you know, there's there's a great market for baby formula. And there's great space for innovation, for better forms of it, more organic, whatever it is. Why is it that we have had so few competitors in the space? And I'd argue that it has everything to do with the unbelievable government regulation, the requirements of the FDA, I mean, they've taken safety to a whole other level where it's completely counterproductive. Um, and so that, that's been one of my biggest takeaways. And so I'm very skeptical anytime the government uh, intervenes. There are absolutely times where it should, right? We need safe baby formula, for example. 
Um, we need secure borders, for example, right? These are the things where the government should be um, intervening. But we have to be very careful about it because the unintended consequences are massive. I mean, everybody keeps saying all these politicians, small businesses are the backbone of the economy. I mean, how many times have we heard that? Um, but in reality, when they put all these rules, they're only hurting these small, medium-sized businesses. Well, and I think you're right. I think I think that the fent- I want to get to the fentanyl crisis, but the formula crisis is uh, is a great example of this. It's a completely um, artificial crisis. Um, first off, it has to do with supply chains here in the United States that have never been addressed or have never been effectively addressed, even though the Biden administration had plenty of warning that the, those were those were starting to break down. The second and, and the shortage started. <clears throat> well before Abbott had its uh, facility shut down. The New York Times was reporting on that back in October, and they didn't shut the facility down until uh, either the end of January, or the beginning of February. The Wall Street Journal had a report on it, uh, on the on uh, formula shortage, uh, just prior to the shutdown. And the FDA was certainly aware that that was going to have an impact because Abbott was the primary contractor for the WIC program, which is part of the food, you know, overall food stamp program. It's just... It's it's something that government created in large part, in part because of the uh, allowing the market to consolidate as much as they did, and in also in part because of the the tariffs and protectionism that they had on foreign sources of formula. And I'm a big buy American kind of guy, but when it comes to baby formula, I am more interested in making sure we've got product on the shelves. You're exactly right. I mean, the the supply chain issues are a direct effect of the consolidation and the fact that there's no competition from some of these foreign sources. So, for example, there are all sorts of European formula um, that, uh, you know, parents have talked about potentially getting. And when they try and get those into the United States, they almost become like drug dealers. They have to go on the black market to get these uh, types of formula that are well established, very readily available in Europe, where they have all sorts of regulations of themselves, but because there's no kind of reciprocity there, um, we're unable to bring that in. And I, I'm with you. I would much prefer that the baby formula be made in the United States. But until we start uh, removing some of these onerous, onerous rules, we're not going to be able to get enough supply because we just don't have enough suppliers that are able to get into the market. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy the way that we've had this thing set up. But you talk about uh, parents turning into drug dealers. Let's talk about fentanyl crisis. Let's talk about the border. Let's talk about actual an actual drug crisis. You know, I, I'm old enough to be to remember when, you know, you talk about drugs and there's a very libertarian streak in California. So, yeah, well, maybe we should just let people do what they want to do. They're adults after all, and et cetera, et cetera. That was before fentanyl, right? That was before you had these, um, these synthetic drugs um, that uh, whose, which the impacts of which were very, very difficult to manage and very, very difficult to, you know, to to control. You have uh, police officers who end up getting sick and dying just because they've come into contact with fentanyl. It's that, yeah. it's that, you know, toxic. It's that, it's that dangerous. And um, I mean, this is this is something that the. the you know, the Trump administration tried to get a handle on this. You know, the Obama administration did did some work. It wasn't as big of a crisis at that point in time, I don't believe. But we're, we're clearly not getting this thing under control. What what do we need to do to get the fentanyl, to get fentanyl off the streets and, and to keep it from being a danger? So the, the first thing we have to do, and, and your setup was all exactly right. I mean, the first thing we need to do is make sure that we have awareness that this is a crisis. We've reached an absolute crisis level with fentanyl. Um, Like you said, it's a man-made synthetic drug. It's 500 times more powerful than heroin, a thousand times more powerful, a hundred times more powerful than morphine. Um, And just a little sugar packet of it uh, can kill 500 people. So this is really deadly, deadly stuff. Um, So the first thing we need to do is make sure that people understand that this is an absolute crisis. If you talk to any sheriff's department, police department, They'll tell you when they're on the street how many times they've seen fentanyl overdoses just completely destroying lives. Um, and, and the data is now starting to back that up. So that's that's first is just having that level of awareness. The second thing that we have to do is make sure that we have laws in place that hold those fentanyl dealers responsible 
if there's a murder as a result of their selling the fentanyl, I mean, these overdoses are happening left and right. And at least in California, we just don't have consequences like we used to for those sorts of crimes. And this is a real travesty. I mean, we are seeing death left and right as a result of this. So I think we have to bring back major consequences uh, for the dealing of fentanyl. I mean, you're seeing it now where people are buying other sorts of drugs and now they're being laced with fentanyl, unbeknownst to those people. I mean, they shouldn't be buying the drugs in the first place. But the fact that that it's laced with the fentanyl and that they're causing all this death, uh, it, it really should be on their hands. Well, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, you need to have some pretty onerous consequences. And that brings us to the prosecutors. Uh, You got two in California right now that are facing recall elections because they don't want to prosecute people. You got Chesa Boudin, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his uh, name right, in San Francisco. You got George Gascon in um, Los Angeles, both of whom are going to face recall elections, I think, this fall. Um, but it's not just those two. I mean, you, there are other progressive DAs that have gotten in here that don't want to prosecute crimes, that want to pursue, you know, uh, progressive social policies rather than enforce the law. How, how do you deal with that um, in terms of being a U.S. Senate candidate? How do you deal with that? So so two things, you know, a U.S. senator has a platform and they've got to use their voice to be able to speak out and say things like, Chesa Budin up in San Francisco has to be recalled. I highly encourage everyone in San Francisco to recall him. Or with George Gascon, we're still collecting signatures. We're almost there. And I hope it qualifies for the November ballot. We're getting very close. So, you know, having a senator with that platform, encouraging people to say enough is enough. I encourage you to support the recall of these two district attorneys, not only them, but also the attorney general, the current one of California is very close to both Chesa Budin and George Gascon. And, you know, as the top law enforcement officer in the state of California, that's a real travesty. He has the same mentality of, you know, very, very light prosecution. Uh, so that's that's one thing of, of just using that platform. On a more tangible level, we've seen instances where the U.S. Attorney's Office will step in and take over a case when the local DA either refuses to prosecute a criminal or will give the lightest possible sentence without any sort of gun enhancements or gang enhancements attached to it. And they'll use federal statutes to go after them. I want to encourage that program, uh, assuming that we continue having these progressive-minded, super you know, liberal, uh, radical DAs. Uh, I want to encourage those programs and make sure that the Department of Justice has the funding for the U.S. Attorney's Office to go after these criminals um, so that we can at least you know, stop this nonsense. Right. And and I think that that's a very that's very well said. Um, you know, we don't have a, too much time left here. And I, I know that uh, I want to make sure that uh, you get a chance here to talk about your campaign, uh, talk about your website, whatever people can do. Uh, you know, voting is going to take place very quickly. It will have already started by the time this podcast goes up, but it will not be over. So make sure, you know, that you're paying attention to this. What can people do, though, in the last few days of this campaign to help you out? And where can they go? So I appreciate that. And I appreciate this this platform um, because I, I have tremendous respect uh, for the work that you've done in the past. Like I said before, it's uh, so it's really an honor to be here today. Um, people, I hope, will visit the website, ellist4senate.com. It's E-L-I-S-T-F-O-R-Senate.com. Uh, they can learn more about my platform, about my background, uh, about the campaign. Uh, the biggest thing is just spreading awareness at this point. So to the extent that people feel comfortable sharing this on their socials, sharing this with friends, it's really critical at this stage for people to you know, share with their networks what's going on. Um, I, I, the one thing to note is that you know, from an election perspective, you're right. So in-person voting uh, starts May 28th. And we'll continue through June 7th. June 7th is the last day to vote. Uh, and you'll also see, this is kind of a quirk of this particular election, you'll see my name on the ballot twice. Uh, and so you got to make sure to vote uh, twice. We say uh, vote Uh-oh. often, vote early, vote often. <laughs> Wait a minute, are, are you running in Chicago? Wait a minute, I, gotta, I just got to <laughs> I gotta check this out. Are you running in Chicago? No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's a super confusing, crazy quirk of the system, but... What happened was when the current appointed senator was in place, uh, uh, put in place by Governor Newsom, uh, when Kamala Harris became vice president, uh, his appointment only went through November of this year. But senators uh, are sworn in January of the following year. So they had to do a separate election for those two months, in addition to the six-year full term, 
they, they had to cover those two months too. Um, so that's why you see it twice. It's, uh, it's, it's a, a little bit of insanity, but you know, we'll, we'll have fun with it. And I hope voters know to vote twice. That's right. That's right. And this is an open, open primary. We used to call it a jungle primary. I, I know there's another term for it, but ever it's an all in primary. So there isn't really a Republican primary or Democratic primary in California. It's everybody in there. So you got to make sure that, uh, you know, to vote for John Ellis twice <laughs> because it's two different spots. <laughs> and and uh, and what's going to happen is the top two candidates in this will will face each other in November twice. <laughs> that, that's right. And, you know, what's what's exciting about this particular race is that for the first time in a long time, we don't have a prominent Democrat outside of the appointed senator who I mean, most people don't even know who he is. So he's got low name, no name recognition as it is. Right. Um, but we don't have a prominent Democrat there. So Unlike past election cycles for a Senate seat where you have a Democrat versus Democrat in the general election because of this top two system, it's looking very likely that that second spot is going to be a Republican. So having a Democrat versus Republican race in the, for the first time in 10 years is exciting because it'll show two very contrasting points of view, right? One where it's all about the current state of affairs in California, status quo, you know, let's just keep going and destroying our state. And another one that says, no, we need a new perspective. We need a new direction. We need to actually serve the people, not only the state, but this country uh, for the first time in a while. Uh, and so that that's exciting. We've outraised all the challengers this past quarter. Uh, we've been doing a ton of voter communication, text messages, mailers, uh, radio, uh, media, having these podcasts, these conversations. We've been doing everything we can on our end to, to get the word out. And so I, I hope uh, that we're poised to win. Uh, next month. Well, I am. I'm glad to be talking with you today. I'm glad to be getting, um, you know, getting a chance to uh, have something in about this race. And I, I am also very grateful that California's crazy energy policies didn't cut you off halfway through this interview. Uh, we didn't even get to energy, but I, I'll give you like, I'll give you like 30 seconds to roll out your energy policy because that's important too. I, I, I feel bad, but uh, before the before the rolling blackouts hit you there in California, what's your energy policy? <laughs> So uh, we've really shot ourselves in the foot when it comes to energy and where you see it the most, and I, it's important to focus on this in the last bit, is on gas prices. We've had six, $7 a gallon. It's higher than the national average very consistently. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that not only do we have the 18 cent per gallon federal gas tax, but we also have a 51 cent per gallon state gas tax. And instead of lowering that or suspending that, the Democrats in Sacramento have decided to increase it starting July 1st, which is just absolute insanity to me. So one of the major one of the major parts of my platform is suspending the gas tax, giving Americans immediate relief uh, because everyone's suffering right now at the pump. All right. John Ellis for uh, Senate. That's Ellis for Senate using F-O-R. So Ellis for and that's where you go to, to the website where you can help out. If you're in California, you've already got a mail, mailed in ballot. Be sure to mark it in and get it in. If you don't do that, go in person, which starts uh, which started on the 28th. This will air uh, after after that. But you've uh, you're, you've got another week after you watch this podcast to get either one of those two things done effectively uh, to mark in for uh, John Ellis, Ellis for Senate so be sure to do that. John, thanks so much for being with us. And I look forward to talking to you about the general election. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ed. Appreciate this. All right. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. And I am pleased to Return to the topic of California's primary uh, elections. It's uh, coming up this week. It's already started, actually, if you haven't already voted. This time we're talking with Eric Early. He's running for California Attorney General. And again, remember that in California, this is an open primary. So just the top two finishers come out for the general election. And uh, Eric Early is not just a uh, experienced uh, policy guy, but he's also an experienced radio guy, which uh, he reminded me of when we just connected up. Eric, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Ed. So you're you're running for well, first off, let's let's talk about your radio experience because I think that that's kind of fun. Uh, uh, we used to be Salem compatriots. I didn't realize this. 
Yes, you know, uh, I'm not a radio guy. I uh, actually uh, I run a nationally recognized law firm. We practice right. courts all around California, all around the nation. But uh, you know, I ran uh, against a uh, a despicable uh, pathological liar in the last election. Uh, and uh, let me let me let you guess who that might be. He's he's got kind of googly eyes, and um, and people have compared his neck to a pencil. And I, I ran against him in the last election. Uh, <laughs> and uh, actually, it was an incredible campaign. There were eight of us on primary night, and I ended up in the top two on the primary. Uh, but during that campaign, I was approached by uh, KRLA in Los Angeles, uh, the Salem affiliate. And uh, I ended up doing a show uh, there every uh, Sunday afternoon. 12 to 1 live, love doing it. And the only reason I'm not there now is because, um, and you know, I was doing it out of Larry's studio and Dennis Prager's studio. It was really yeah. cool. And we start we started building a great following. The only reason I'm not there now is because as a candidate, KRLA didn't want to have, because of their rules and regs, couldn't have a candidate there. So I'm on uh, KABC now, AM 790, uh, on Friday evenings from 7 to 8 p.m. live. And it's amazing show. It's called the Eric Early Show, and I love doing it. Well, you know, if you're a Los Angeles native like I am, I don't live there any longer, but uh, I grew up in, you know, I was born and raised in LA, grew up in LA. You know that KABC is a pretty mighty station out there for talk, so that's a that's a good gig to land, Eric. Yeah, I, I love it, and um, uh, it, I'm, I talk about all the uh, the political issues of the day and, and about, you know, my campaign for California Attorney General right now, of course, and uh, you know, as you know, Ed, there's a lot to talk about. There is a lot to talk about. And I think that there's a lot in your background that really lends itself to this. Of course, again, you, as you say, you you lead a nationally recognized law firm. One of the things that you did in that nationally recognized law firm was you brought one of the very first lawsuits, if not the first lawsuit, uh, in dealing with uh, critical race theory being, uh, being an indoctrination topic in uh, public school districts, uh, really under the, you know, sort of under the radar, right? Parents weren't really aware of this. And and tell us a little bit about that lawsuit and what it was that, uh, and, what, and how you won it. Well, you know, it's now recognized as the first in the nation lawsuit that's ever been brought against what is now publicly known as critical race theory. We uh, brought this lawsuit over four years ago. Nobody had ever heard of this stuff. I had never heard of it. Uh, I got, they were calling it in, uh, Santa Barbara where we filed a lawsuit, unconscious bias training at the time. And, uh, I got called by a great group of uh, parents up in Santa Barbara, very brave people. Uh, and they said to me, uh, Eric, they're indoctrinating our kids in our school here, Santa Barbara Unified School District to hate America. They're dividing our kids by race in the school. We've asked multiple times the district to give us the materials, the teaching materials, they told us we're not entitled to see them. What can we do? So we formed this great group of uh, citizens up there called Fair Education Santa Barbara. And I was a lead lawyer and we sued the Santa Barbara Unified School District. We sued the uh, superintendent up there who we ultimately were able to get removed. And we sued this group that I refer to as social justice warriors. And uh, it caused frankly a firestorm among the liberal press in Santa Barbara. Uh, you know, they'd been, Around the country, they've been they've been they'd worked overtime for many many years to keep this stuff under wraps for, for from from all of us, and uh, so the liberal press went crazy on me. My uh, clients up there, they called us all racists and white supremacists, you know the whole package, and uh, and we wouldn't be denied, you know. And there's one thing I don't like, uh, you know. I fight for every law-abiding American citizen of every race, creed, and color, and. One of one of the things I don't like is uh, being called a racist by a bunch of racists. Yes. And uh, and the far left in this nation, uh, the most dangerous force in this nation are the most racist people we have seen in this nation in decades. They eat, drink, breathe, sleep, dream racism. So we wouldn't be denied. We end, we continued the fight. Uh, we ended up getting those materials, those teaching materials, those indoctrination materials. And frankly, we were stunned by what we saw. Nobody had seen this stuff before. You know, all white people are oppressors. All brown people are victims. America's bad. Socialism is good. Uh, you know, and, and this sexually over-the-top stuff 
that no kid under high school should frankly see. That's all incorporated into this sort of broad umbrella of uh, what they call critical race theory. And so um, somebody on our team had a connection to Betsy DeVos, who was Donald Trump's uh, education secretary, got the materials to her. She got them to President Trump. He looked at them. He couldn't believe what he was reading. And that started the the fight against critical race theory nationally and started bringing it out into the open. But, um, you know, this stuff is this brainwashing is devastating uh, and it is powerful and it is going on in every single public school in our state as we speak, starting in kindergarten. It's going on in most private schools now, starting in kindergarten, going all the way through college. Uh, these radicalized teachers know exactly what they're doing. And there should be no surprise where these woke have come from, these evil woke. Because you can practically compare word for word the positions they take, the things they say, and this, these indoctrination pro programs. So um, I'll tell you something. Uh, as Attorney General of California, Chief Law Enforcement Officer, Chief Legal Officer, First of all, you got to start with somebody like me who understands how devastating this stuff is, right. how dangerous it is, how pervasive it is. There's not another person in this race who has a clue about it. And I will do everything I can. I will align myself with the gov uh, the attorney generals of the red states, do everything I can to get this stuff out of our kids' schools. Uh, they are stealing the brains of our children. They know exactly what they are doing. And it is one of the most powerful weapons they have in their effort to undermine and destroy this this incredible country of ours. It must be stopped. You know, Eric, one of the things that uh, we could talk about this for hours, but uh, I just want to hit this really quickly and then move on to some of the other issues. This starts really with the formation of educators, right? I mean, I, I remember writing about this about 14 years ago or 13 years ago when I was living in Minnesota and the University of Minnesota had this requirement that um, was uh, that all all of its students in its education program had to complete this task of basically confessing their privilege. And it was almost, you know, show trial-esque that you had to, you know, it, you had to confess that you were, you know, part of an oppressor uh, class and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know what it is because you've seen all this material. And so it's not just the fact that they're handing these teachers a curriculum and saying, go out and teach this. It's that they're forming the teachers to do that. And I'm curious as to what you think. Um, first off, I'm sure it's happening in California. If it was happening in Minnesota, it's happening in California. But secondly, um, how do you see the AG as um, the AG's role in counteracting that to some degree and trying to correct the problem at its source? Well, uh, everything you just said uh, is completely accurate. Uh, the brainwashing uh, is full on with those who are learning how to learning to be teachers. Uh, and, and you know, what what people who watch this stuff closely, I hear from parents around the country. They know about my involvement in this around the state. I get lesson plans sent to me and stuff. Uh, we're witnessing it's becoming easier to do that brainwashing because the people who are becoming our future teachers have already been through these indoctrination programs uh, in their schools. Uh, listen, I have sitting on my uh, desk in my uh, law office, a uh, it's about a 40 page uh, legal opinion that was prepared by the attorney general of the state of Montana following, you know, long time, uh, you know, solid um, uh United States Supreme Court precedent uh, against uh, racism, frankly, uh, that he used uh, to help him outlaw critical race theory in the schools in, in uh, Montana. Uh, you look at uh, what Governor Ron DeSantis really did with his legislature in Florida, where they signed the bill that I completely support called the Parental Rights Bill, which outlaws the teaching of this gender fluidity, uh, transgender stuff, uh, to uh, without parental consent, uh, to children starting at five years old in kindergarten in Florida and going through third grade. Uh, I completely support that bill. Kids don't know anything about sex, but these brainwash artists 
these really psychos on the other side are intent on doing everything possible to get hold of our youngest children, get them away from their parents, and do this terrible uh, stuff to the kids' heads. So, you know, there's things out there that there's ways to deal with this. Uh, of course, we're in California, uh, and we have a legislature that I call the Politburo. We have a state <laughs> government that is as far left and woke uh, and, frankly, Marxist as they come in this country. And so the battle lines out here are much greater than what they're dealing with in Florida and in Montana. But we need a we need a major statewide office holder, me, who understands this stuff, who wants to protect our parents and our children and our nation, and who will get up there and do everything I can. And yes, I'm going to be attacked by the uh, the usual suspects, uh, like you know the socialist rag known as the Los Angeles Times, or uh, you know up and down the state those right. kind of outfits. But I'm telling you something, it. This campaign, we're getting incredible support from the people. The grassroots of California support me up and down the state. I've been speaking up and down this state for the last year. I've spoken to thousands and thousands of people. There are so many people in our state, and this crosses party lines. Right. Who know we are in deep and serious trouble, who are incredibly frustrated, incredibly angry, because they know that this stuff is not allowed to come out publicly by the sort of controllers of our brains, the mainstream and social media. And uh, I'm getting tremendous support from them. And I'm a fighter, you know. And, right. And, uh, you know, these these clowns on the other side think they're going to get me down and it's not going to work. Eric, you bring up a topic I was actually going to save to last, but because you brought it up, let's just go ahead and segue into that, and then I'll get to another issue in just a moment. Yeah. But, you know, sitting around with friends, and they know I'm a you know, native Californian. I, I left in 97. Um, I'm in Texas now. Mm. And and they're, they're saying- I'm trying to prevent pe good people like you from leaving, but I, <laughs> I totally get it. I get it. We all get it. But- um, I, well, thank you. I appreciate that. But, but, yeah. but, you know, th their question was to me, you know, people who, who asked me about California, their question is to me, how much longer can that possibly go on before the people there just simply wake up and realize that they're heading into a collapse? And you, you mentioned the fact that you're getting this great grassroots response. And I, I you know, I, me being the sort of skeptic I, I usually am, it was like, well, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure that they're going to wake up until the collapse actually happens, but do you see um, a shift in attitude, especially in the last year or so, after seeing just the multiple, um, you know, multiple points of failure, both at the state level and at the national level of the, you know, governing establishment? Oh, Ed, we see it. We hear it. It's palpable. The people are rising up in this state. Uh, unfortunately, so many people don't know that because the mainstream media and these lying sacks who are in power right now won't let the majority of people see this. But, you know, uh, you know, I was lead lawyer for the uh, Gavin Newsom recall uh, movement. Uh, Orrin Heatley, the lead proponent, and Mike Netter, the main proponent, are very good friends of mine. Uh, and they uh, they run my campaign. And, uh, you know, they got two million signatures on that recall petition. Now, you know, a lot of people just... Uh, just look at that now as this, well, that was easy, you know. That was, no, it was not easy. That was uh, no political movement in the history of the world obtained more signatures uh, uh, for a political petition other than Brexit, uh, than the uh, Newsom recall. And that was the, frankly, one of the first shots across the bow that showed that the people are getting pissed. People yeah. are pissed, frankly. And mind you, of those two 2.1 million signatures, about a third and more than a third, so that's more than 600,000 of those signatures, were not Republicans. Right. Uh, and and I will tell you this, you know, everybody points to that election. You know, my, my guys, our team, we got the signatures, Oren and Mike and the, the, the amazing volunteers, thousands of them up and down the state got those signatures got it re uh, the recall uh, uh, petition on the ballot and then it was up to the candidates to win lose raise money whatever but uh, 
The only reason Newsom won that, which you don't hear about, uh, besides the fact that two and a half million Republicans did not even vote in a recall, which is just just a travesty, frankly. Right. Is that Newsom raised seventy million dollars to do advertising? You know, I'm campaigning up and down the state. At that time, he the state was blanketed with lying advertisements. Two ads said one: if you don't elect Newsom, you're all going to die of COVID. And oh, by the, the way, and the second ad was: this is a Republican Trump recall. Both complete lies. But but Ed, if I had raised seventy million dollars uh, to advertise. I could have gotten Newsom's dog, assuming he has one, uh, elected governor in the state of California. So, but for that $70 million that came in from everybody, the far left, the far left wealth, and there's so much of it out there, uh, to preserve this woke takeover of California, because they know if, if they're holding California crumbles, they're holding the nation crumbles. But for that money, Newsom would be, you know, uh, you know, he'd be he'd be working. Uh, who knows what he'd be doing right now? So, uh, you know, that was a shot across the bow. Then look at what happened in San Francisco about two months ago. Three far left woke school board members in San Francisco were recalled. Right. Yes. That Chesa was dramatic. Chesa Bodine, the flat out Marxist district attorney in San Francisco. They've already gotten the recall certified. It's on the ballot. They're voting on June 7th. And from what I hear, uh, it looks like he'll be recalled. Uh, we're trying to do the same thing, get the signatures down here in L.A. with this this reprobate named George Gascon, the district attorney. But my point is, in answer to your question, the people in California are pissed off. The people in California absolutely are rising. It's palpable. We feel it everywhere we go. We see it. We hear it. That's why I'm getting such great support. And um, and I do believe that uh, the change in California uh, is coming. Even Democrats tell me, and I live here in what I call the belly of the beast, L.A., uh, they tell me, of course, I talk to them all the time, surrounded by them, that they might be Democrat, but they they believe that the woke have simply gone too far and they got to be stopped and they have to be stopped. Eric. We know that you're a radio guy because you do great segues. I mean, because <laughs> literally the next thing I wanted to ask you was about Chesa Boudin and George Gascon, uh, because yeah. as AG, obviously you're going to be the chief law enforcement officer in the state of California and yeah. crime. I mean, this is not just in California. Crime has gone up everywhere. It is a major concern for voters and you have prosecutors in a lot of these places that don't step in, that won't step in, that refuse to step in. Chesa Boudin and George Gascon um, both have refused to prosecute people, have, you know, tried to, you know, roll out some sort of cultural justice approach rather than um, actually law enforcement. As AG, um, <laughs> you're, you're assuming that Boudin and, and Gascon haven't already gotten booted out of office, uh, you're going to be, you're going to have to be the backstop of that. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about where the current AG is in dealing with these um, prosecutors in the two largest cities in the state who refuse to prosecute mm -hmm. and how you would handle that, Eric. And, and uh, you're champing at the bit already. I can see this, but, <laughs> but yeah, wait, uh, how you would handle that? I'm waiting to go. I'm ready to go. Let it go, man. <laughs> Listen, uh, first, let me give some context to this. There are 58 district attorneys in the state of California because there are 58 counties and every county has a district attorney. And they all report up to the attorney general, which is the position I'm running for. And thankfully, most of those 58 district attorneys, they're great. They do what district attorneys are supposed to do. They they prosecute the criminals. They protect the law abiding. They protect the victims of crime. But we've got at least two of what we call these rogue district attorneys. You've got this George Gascon down here in L.A. County, who, frankly, is a flat out Marxist. You've got Chesa Bodine up in San Francisco, also a flat out Marxist. His parents were weather underground terrorists who made their living, you know, bombing people, uh, which is just a lovely training ground if you're going to be a chief prosecutor. Yeah. And and, uh, and they are what I call criminal lovers. 
And then we have the attorney general of the state right now who is appointed by, by Newsom. And he is ideologically joined at the hip with uh, Gascon Abodin. And his name is Banta. And he is one of my opponents. And, and, and the three of them uh, have helped, along with Newsom, along with the Politburo, have helped turn California into what I call a criminal's paradise. They bend over backwards to do everything possible to protect criminals, to not prosecute them, to let them out of prison as soon as possible. They look at law-abiding citizens as if, you know, well, we should just be able to deal with that. And then the victims of crime they give the back of their hands to. California law expressly allows the attorney general, position I'm running for, to go in and take away prosecutions from district attorneys who are not following the law, who are not properly protecting the people. And one of the first things I do as attorney general, if this Gascon is not recalled by then, if this Bodine is not recalled by then, is I charge some, some great lawyers in the California Department of Justice, uh, and I'll be overseeing that as attorney general, to go through the caseloads of, of, of the rogue DAs, and we will determine which ones we take away from them. And, uh, and the way I would do it is, Gascon down here, for example, has a couple hundred great deputy DAs working for him. And those deputy DAs were polled, and over 90% of them said that they want to see Gascon recall. So he's got a mutiny in his own office going on. So we would take away the cases. We would give them to the deputies to handle, but instead of them reporting up to Gascon, they will report up to me. And job number one for attorney general is to keep our great California citizens of every race, creed, and color safe. And I get this job, Bonta, Bodine, and Gascon are going to be, and Newsom are going to be some very unhappy puppies. We're going to make California safe again. So, uh, you know, big change is coming. Should I get this job? And uh, and I could tell you, there are tens of millions of Californians across the political spectrum, across the racial spectrum, across the socioeconomic spectrum that support exactly what I'm saying. Well, I think maybe even more so than they did a couple of years ago, right? Because a lot of this stuff was floating around as theory. You had to defund the police and, you know, coming out of the um, uh, Minnesota, you know, George Floyd um, uh, situation and the riots that followed after that. And I think after two years of watching police, you know, roll back their uh, assertiveness and, and watching the results of that, which were entirely predictable because we'd spent decades building up a certain type of policing to keep uh, a lid on crime, to roll that back and have crime rebound as quickly as it did, I think has really sent a wake-up call to everybody but the policymakers, right? Well, I mean, you're it, still, you, know, you still don't have the policymakers waking up to this. And of course, it's always been entirely predictable to those of us with common sense. doesn't have to be an expert to know that if you open the prison cells and let the uh, felons run wild, crime is going to go up. If you have no respect whatsoever for our brave men and women of law enforcement, and Bonta has none, Newsom has none, Politburo has none, uh, crime is going to go up. If you have a law that says uh, you can steal up to $950 at a shot, multiple times a day, mind you, and nothing's going to happen to you, crime is going to go up. If you don't set cash bail when you bring in some of these thugs, and so they're right back on the street, crime is going to go up. Uh, but uh, that's exactly what's going on out here. I'll do everything I can to reverse every single one of those policies. I'll change a narrative in the state. We will openly and proudly support our brave men and women of law enforcement again. And as I frequently say, criminals might be criminals, uh, but they're not stupid, or at least most of them aren't. And uh, they know that crime pays in California. And we're going to let them know again that crime does not pay in California. So, uh, you know, we got a lot of uh, changes coming in California. We're going to protect the citizens again. But, you know, Ed, one of the main one of the crazy things you see out here with these 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 far left woke like this George Gascon, like this Rob Banta, like this Chesa Bodine, they say, well, we've seen the data and the data, <laughs> for example, shows that. Uh, just because we raise the amount, you could seal up to nine hundred fifty dollars and nothing happens to you. 
that hasn't led to an increase in crime. They just they look at you with a straight face and they tell you stuff. So what I've been saying more and more is their data was written in a Marvel comic book factory. Okay, uh, they are full of it. We know the people know they're full of it. And uh, it is time for a change in California. Everything you're hearing, uh, Ed, is why uh, we're getting great, great support. And even in California, Ed, that's one thing. Uh, the position I'm running for, Attorney General, that's one thing that even in this day and age, Democrats will vote for. They know that uh, when crime is going through the roof, as it is out here, when we have this criminal's paradise that we have out here, that the person to get in office is is a a hard ASS, uh, you know, conservative to get our hands wrapped around this stuff to protect the people again. Well, Eric Early is the hard ass conservative. You can say ass oh, on this. It. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you, you know, I think you can actually say that on the air anyway. But but yeah, this is uh, we are we are absent F FCC protections, although I do try to keep it as well, clean I as possible, Eric. But yeah. <laughs> You know, I once said the people are pissed off on my KRLA show, and I got a note saying, "No, you can't say that." So, uh, okay. I, I, you know, just to just to tell tales inside the Salem. I, mean, I, I had a local radio show on a Salem affiliate years and years ago in Minneapolis, right? Along with some friends of mine, and they, the, 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 the style guide was: you can say any word that's in the Bible. <laughs> and, and so you could say ass, but you probably couldn't say pissed. And I'm not sure that we ever tried to use pissed, but we, you know, they, if it's in the Bible, you can say it. So, um, so yeah, hard ass conservative. That's Eric Early. He's running for attorney general. Eric, where can people uh, go to find out more about your campaign? And again, voting's already going on. The, the last day for voting and in-person voting takes place on June 7th. That's going to be about a week after we post this because this this will be posted on May 31st. And um, so you'll have a week after you see this podcast if you're in California to get out and vote for Eric Early. Where can they go to find out more about you and help out with your campaign? Go to ericearly4ca.com, E-R-I-C-E-A-R-L-Y-F-O-R-C-A.com. Uh, that'll show you all about me, all about the campaign. Uh, all donations are incredibly helpful. We're telling everybody out here, vote early for early. The voting is going on as we speak. Uh, we need your support. Don't, don't, don't avoid your obligation to vote. I have serious problems with uh, election integrity in this state, in this country, but you must vote. We can't have what happened in the Newsom recall. And when you're on the website, Click on the Twitter link and uh, you'll see a post that I did yesterday that has our one and a half minute campaign video on there. You know, Ed, we posted it yesterday and that campaign video has already had over 21,000 views. Wow. And it, yeah, it's uh, it's an incredible video and it'll give uh, all of your uh, viewers a, a better idea of, of me and the campaign. Eric Early for CA.com. Check out everything on the website. Uh, but also click on the Twitter link there and uh, and check out what we posted yesterday. You know, Eric, I, I know we've kind of gotten into this late. I'm glad we got to it when we did, though, so that we have a chance to to contribute to, you know, ex exposure of uh, this primary with time still left. After the primary is over and you're one of the one of the final two candidates, I'm hoping that you'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about election integrity. We'll talk a little bit more about. Uh, violent crime and um, and some other issues in California. Uh, but right now, the important thing is, is get out to the polls and vote in California. And you got to do it now. Eric Early, again, Eric Early for CA dot com, right? Eric Early for CA dot com. Yep. All right. And thank you so much uh, for having me. God bless everybody watching. And, and uh, I will tell you something. Uh, we're in a battle right now. I've set it off in a battle of good versus evil. Uh, the other side has had a many, many year head start on us. This was going on under the surface. We're starting to figure it out. We will win this battle, but it's time for good people and the fighters to step up. And that is exactly what's happening. So God bless all of you. Uh, God bless you, Ed. And thank you so much for having me. Eric Early for Attorney General in California. Stay tuned for more from The Ed Morrissey Show. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you liked what you saw, be sure to subscribe at each of the different platforms. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Rumble, we're on YouTube. 
and we're at the Town Hall Media Player, so be sure to subscribe. Subscriptions are important. Really do appreciate that. It's free. Uh, be sure to like the video if you like that as well. We want to get the word out as much as we possibly can. Really want to thank you for being with us. And while you're at it, if you're at any one of the Town Hall websites, especially hotair.com, be sure to subscribe to our VIP program or our VP, VIP Gold program, which has uh, extra benefits for our subscribers. That is a paid subscription service, but that money goes to fund important uh, initiatives such as Julio Rosas's on-the-road journalism, first-person journalism, journalism you can trust from the border, from the unrest in cities, and all other sorts of things. We do all sorts of fun things with our VIP Gold uh, subscription members, including our VIP Gold chat that I do with Cam Edwards on Wednesday afternoons. Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Each of our sites have their own live chat editions and their own uh, streaming shows for VIP Gold members. So be sure to subscribe to the Hot Air uh, VIP, VIP Gold, which goes across the entire Town Hall media spectrum, and especially to the Ed Morrissey Show podcasts. We really appreciate it. Thank you for watching.